Welcome to As Luck Would Have It. My name is Abby and I'm the admin and comms worker here at Like That Uniting. We are a church based on Gadigal and Wongal land in Sydney, Australia. You'll find us at Like That Uniting Church Luck on Facebook. Sermons or on YouTube under the same name. You can find more information at likeoutunitingchurch.org.au. In this episode of As Luck Would Have It, Reverend Adrian Sukumar White is preaching a sermon from Isaiah 63, 7-9 and Matthew 2, 13-23, titled Christ Coming Into the Real World. This is the third and final episode of our Advent series and was originally preached in December 2019. I will be providing the readings ahead of the sermon. This is the book of Isaiah, chapter 63, verses 7-9. to from the New Revised Standard Version. I will recount the gracious deeds of the Lord, the praiseworthy acts of the Lord, because of all that the Lord has done for us and the great favour of the house of Israel, that he has shown them according to his mercy, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, Surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their saviour in all the distress. It was no messenger or angel, but his presence that saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Thus ends the first reading. The second reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 13 to 23, also from the New Revised Standard Version. This reading contains references to violence against children. Now after they had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night and went to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Out of Egypt I have called my son. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated, and he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had learned from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they are no more. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who are seeking the child's life are dead. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. After being warned in a dream, he went away to the district of Galilee. There he made his home in a town called Nazareth, so that what had been spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He will be called a Nazarene. Thus ends the second reading. This Sunday at Leichhardt Uniting Church, Reverend Adrian Sukumar White will once again be preaching on the story of Herod. You can join us at 3 Wetherill Street, Leichhardt, Gadigal and Wongal Land from 10am or via live stream on Facebook. For the meantime, please enjoy the following sermon. About a month ago, we bought a little wooden nativity set for Anna, and she loves to play with it. She loves to find baby Jesus and give baby Jesus a kiss. 
And so far it's been great because these simple wooden figures are indestructible in her little hands so far. It's been a joy to watch her play with it and she turns it into her own little world. And for the most part, she's very caring of the figurines. She'll line them up carefully and on the odd occasion, she'll actually re recreate the classic nativity scene. But it seems as though at luck through Advent, a lot of what we've been trying to do is to break away from this classic nativity idea, not least through our nativity musical. But no matter how hard we try, we seem to be drawn back into this perfect nativity moment. And it's a tricky space for us to be in because on the one hand, it's kind of nice. But on the other hand, it just doesn't quite fit into the reality of life. Well, it seems like the Bible comes to us with the same problem because on this, the first Sunday after Christmas, we are given this challenging reading which drags us into a stark reality. How quickly we move from silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright, to the horrific notion of infanticide. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated and he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had learned from the wise men. As is often the case when we come to a text of horror in scripture, it gives us pause for thought. What do we do with this? Where do we find the good news? Is there any good news here? It's worth a little background exploration for us as we are in the year of Matthew now where for the most part our gospel readings will come from Matthew's gospel into 2020. But here's a question for you. Why is Matthew's gospel first? This might sound like why is the number one first, but there is more to it. There is a reason for Matthew's gospel to be the first one and it's not because it's necessarily the earliest gospel. Credit for that is usually given to the gospel of Mark. It's not the longest gospel, that goes to Luke. So why is Matthew first? Well, Matthew is often considered as the most Jewish gospel with the most links to the Old Testament. So for example, think for a moment how the book of Matthew begins. It begins with a genealogy which links Jesus to Abraham. This is a very Jewish way to start the story. You are defined by who your ancestors are. And for many, the validity of Jesus' claim to Messiahhood is linked to his ancestral connection to Abraham, the father of nations. And so with Christianity's unbreakable ties to both Judaism and the Old Testament, Matthew then becomes a bridge between the Old and New Testaments. And before you utter your heads and mutter, uh, shake your heads and mutter, nice story, Grandpa, seeing the Jewishness of Matthew's gospel is really important to how we then approach it and in particular how we approach this story. Egypt, a stubborn and powerful ruler, the killing of infants. Where have we heard this before? The writer of Matthew has crafted this story to point us back to the story of Exodus. In, the story, in that story, God helped the Israelites to escape from slavery in ancient Egypt by inflicting 10 plagues upon the Egyptians. Before, the pharaohs would before Pharaoh would release the Israelite slaves. The last of those plagues was the death of the Egyptian firstborn. Moses then leads the Israelites out of Egypt where they wander in the wilderness for 40 years before finding the promised land. The original audience to Mark's gospel would have been very familiar with this story and would have easily connected the similarities. And the author of Matthew made these connections for at least two reasons. And the first is to connect the prophet Moses 
to the person of Jesus. And the second is to make the claim of history repeating itself. The concept of history repeating itself is something we're probably all familiar with, but does it actually happen? On the one hand, it would seem to be an obvious no. Things are always changing and adapting. Technology, as an example, is always progressing. The world of today is nothing like the world of a 1,000 or 2,000 years ago. But on the other hand, we do seem to make the same mistakes. I wonder how many times after the countless wars of our world, the phrase never again has been uttered. And yet we forget. Philosopher George Santayana said it best, those who cannot remember the past are doomed to repeat it. Those who cannot remember the past are doomed to repeat it. And this repetition of history occurs within the story we hear itself because Herod dies and the angel tells Joseph that they can then return home. But notice how Joseph is not overjoyed but is afraid to return home because Herod's son Archelaus is now in charge. Does anyone know anything about Archelaus? No? Well, if you thought Herod was bad, meet his son. Archelaus was responsible for ordering the massacre of 3,000 Jews at the temple during his reign, which eventually led him to his removal by Caesar. It says something if you're too violent for the Roman Empire. And this gives us another important consideration because individuals should be held accountable for their actions, but there is more to it. Because if you take Herod out of the picture, the problems don't go away. Instead, you then get Archelaus. It is the systems of power, the systems of control, the systems of violence that need to be confronted because it is those systems that create the individual. It's like the hydra from Greek mythology. You chop off a head and two more will simply grow in its place. It's what Paul was getting at in his letter to the Ephesians when he wrote, For our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness. For those of you who are with us on Christmas Day, you would have heard Radica preach on the proclamation from Isaiah that God is indeed doing a new thing and that that new thing is Jesus. And this is why the Jesus narrative is so confronting, so revolutionary, because it clashes with the reality of history repeating itself. In essence, only one of these things can be ultimately true. And what that means is that we find ourselves caught in the clash. We are caught in the worldly and heavenly struggle of history repeating itself and God doing a new thing. These are uncertain times for us, but unfortunately that is nothing new. It may not feel like much of a consolation, but Jesus himself lived in uncertain times. And that's why texts like this one are important, is that they don't gloss over those uncertain times, the difficult times, the horrific times. Nadia Boltz-Weber says that we have lost the plot if we use religion as the place where we escape from our difficult realities instead of the place where those difficult realities are giving meaning. The story of Herod and infanticide reveals a God who has entered our world as it, as it actually exists 
and not the world we often wish it would be. And this is not a theoretical idea for Nadia. It came from her experience of needing to share the gospel on the Sunday after Christmas, the year that the Sandy Hook massacre took place, where 26 teachers and children were killed in a mass shooting 11 days before Christmas. She was grateful that in her tradition, the Sunday following Christmas was usually reserved for a service of lessons and carols so she wouldn't actually have to preach. And that's where we pick up her story. So on the Saturday before we gathered to hear the nine lessons traditionally read for the service of lessons and carols, I told my new intern, Alex, we've added a reading tonight, The Slaughter of the Innocents. And during the prayers of the people, let's read the names of the 26 teachers and children who died, and maybe their ages as well. And we'll ring a bell after each. You mean 27, he replied. I'm sorry? What's that, I asked? Adam Lanza, the shooter. He died too. No way, I said before even thinking about it. Um, Nadia? Alex didn't have to say anything else. I knew he was right. The other aspect of the story of Jesus' birth is that, as John's Gospel said, a light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. God chose to enter a time as violent and faithless as our own, yes. But the other thing we must confess is that the light of Christ cannot, will not, and shall, not, shall never be overcome by that darkness. Not by Herod, not by Lanza. The light of Christ is so bright that it shines even for me and even for them. I finally relented. Fine, I said, but I am registering my opposition to God's grace. I'm sure God is super hurt about it, Alex replied. Two days later, when we stood in front of the congregation, Alex solemnly struck a bell for each of the names of the dead teacher, teachers and children. Charlotte Bacon, six, a bell rang. Daniel Barden, seven, another bell. Olivia Engel, six. The vibration from each bell felt as though it was shaking my insides so hard that images of every six-year-old I'd ever known filled my mind, and with each bell strike, I saw them lying on a classroom floor. I couldn't read the final name right away because it took me a minute to reach deep enough into my theological convictions in order to find the mercy to do so. I had been so intensely focused on telling the truth about the kind of world that God entered and how it was as violent and faithless as our own that I had forgotten in my sermon to actually mention why God had entered it. If I couldn't also speak the truth that God came to save us, all of us, that God created us in God's image and that, li and that lives we'd rather extinguish are still precious to their maker, and that the North Star that so brightly lit the way for the Magi to find the Christ child shone for them and for Herod and for me and for Charlotte Bacon and for Lanza, then I really had no business being a preacher that day. And so I dug deep to speak the truth of God. And in obedience to your command to love the enemy and to pray for those who persecute us, my voice cracked as if the courage were draining out of it. Adam Lanza, 20 the final bell rang. We live in a world of school shootings, of asylum seekers and refugees, and of those who want to oppress them, a world where our climate is getting out of control, 
with our horrific bushfires as a foretaste of what to expect if this continues unchecked. It's pretty messed up. And yet in this very messed up world, God comes to us. In the incarnate Jesus, God comes to us. And the trauma of our world is not lost on God as we heard in the reading from Isaiah. In all their distress, God too was distressed. God comes to us in Jesus to give meaning to our difficult realities. Not to pretend that everything's okay or that we should just stop complaining, but that in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, we can, under, we can discover the means to overcome. We can rest in the liberating presence of God's grace, even if, if it is for a moment. I think that's what we hope this community is and will continue to be, a place where people can rest in God's grace and to be refreshed and re-energized and re-challenged for the discipleship journey ahead. It's hard to believe that Radhika and I have been with you for a whole year. Well, 363 days. It's been a privilege for both of us, a challenging, life-giving privilege to serve as your ministers here. And as we take some time of leave, we hope that you all find some time for rest because 2020 is coming up fast and together we will do our best to live not as a people caught up in a history repeating, but as people who are part of God's new thing. Hallelujah. Amen. Thanks for joining us for this episode of As Luck Would Have It, proudly presented by Leichhardt Uniting Church. If you have not yet done so, please subscribe and feel free to leave a rating or review. And you can also visit our website and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Have a great day.